Saturday. What day is it today? Wednesday. Exactly. Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falcon, Slipper Falcon Screen, and we're joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Hello. And freelance writer and critic Virat Nehru. Hello, people. Now, as we promised, we are bringing you more and more Film Fight Club in the midst of COVID-19 self-isolation restrictions. We are still isolating from our respective homes. We see each other, but we don't do it in person. We so feel we, each other through the force. Like radio, just disembodied voices yeah. coming out the of The waves. But as of Friday, we might be getting some relaxation in those restrictions. So, you know, looking forward to that. If only two of us lived together, we could then record together. But... But Unless. we are. We, I, aren't you allowed from Friday to have two people visit? Yeah, exactly. Like we live together is the restriction, as I understand. Oh, really? Yeah, two people from the same household, two adults from the same household are allowed to visit another household. But to man, be honest, yeah, we're recording this Tuesday honest. night, by the way. This is a fresh announcement. So anything yeah. that happens in the next twenty-four hours, there may or may not be new developments. But to be honest, guys, we're all part of a film family, so we technically we're all part of one family, and we all can visit each other. In the world of movies. Speaking of the one family. The big news of the day. Uh, this is not just in the news of the film world, but in the mainstream press. It's one of the leading BBC news stories. Certainly it's made the press in Australia, heard of the morning radio. But we are one. The YouTube, a massive international film festival, which is taking place on YouTube from May 29th through to June 7th. There are roughly 20 international festivals, including Berlin, BFI, Cannes, Jerusalem, Mumbai, Sundance, Toronto, Tribeca, TIFF, and Australia representative in the Sydney Film Festival. It's a free online festival. It's having digitally, you can watch it on YouTube, and it's films, shorts, docos, music, comedy, conversations. It's huge. It's the biggest project of its kind that's ever been announced. I mean, who would have thought that we'd have a film festival on YouTube of all places when 2020 started? But this is actually for, for all cinephiles and especially I think for people like us when we do the festival grind, to be able to access so many, especially we've been starved of film festivals given they've been cancelled. I mean, this is a breath of, this is much needed, I would say. This is, it's, yeah, well, the, yeah, there aren't many other options. Uh, we're making do as best we can. As I've said last week, I don't think this is in any way a substitute for a film festival. But Yeah, it's not a real cinema, yeah. cinematic experience. Yeah. But yeah, it's the spirit to persevere on and try to keep some semblance of the things we love alive. And so hats off to them for all coming together. Yeah, I still don't know what's actually going to be programmed in that. So that we're going to have uh, future updates of what kind of films will be screened. We'll wait and see. There will be updates over the coming because they haven't released any titles yet. I think essential to a film festival feeling, even though we are all relatively isolated, is that we watch this together. We watch this as one. There's a certain amount of time. It's not like you tune in something on streaming and pause it. You, there's more of a collective experience because you can also watch it and you may be more inclined to watch it with your group of friends. Now, um, I spoke to Nash and Moodley, the director of the Sydney Film Festival, just all of an hour ago. And that interview will be up on Festivus and Falcon Screen, along with uh, some other coverage of, which we're gonna be talking about in the moment, of the festivals that are going online and how Australian spaces are innovating in light of COVID-19. Um, two points that, Nash made several points, but two key points that are sort of um, highlight here one is that what this will do is that it will bring a sense of how other festivals run overseas to australia certainly as tiff tribeca the major ones are participating 
uh, Sydney is a huge event, but it's not something on that scale. We will get a glimpse into how that operates, into that atmosphere, into that mindset, and we all work together, which is ex an exciting prospect. And the other thing is that, and he's confirmed, one of the major things that we highlighted on this platform, and certainly what Sydney Film Festival we're pushing for is Australian films. So we will see Australian material coming up come May 29th. We don't know what that is yet, but um, it's something to really look forward to, especially as this is actually running partially over the dates of SFF. So we won't have SFF in its regular form, but we will have our own virtual SFF, something that was speculated a bit earlier in the year and something that has actually come to fruition. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. It's, uh, we've been starved of cinema, as Chris was saying, and as Glenn has already alluded to, we have, MIF has been cancelled. That's not happening as well in August. So we've been waiting for some kind of cinematic experience or a film festival. Granted, this is not that, but it's as close to something in these extraordinary circumstances that we can have. So I am very excited. And yeah, I'm just excited to see this collaborative experience coming together because getting insights into how the world cinematic scene is operating into Australia is going to be exciting. Now, in terms of the local festival scene, we should have clarified at the beginning, one thing we are, what we're covering this week mainly is the filmography of the late, great Billy Wilder. Thanks to a suggestion from Declan Green, Declan from the Nerd Daily. Thank you so much. We reached down and said, tell us what to fight about. Pick a fight with us. You picked a fight with us, so we're fighting about him. We revisited exactly. Wilder's filmography. Fight was suggested yeah. on social media because we now have social media channels. It's finally happening. Um, yeah, so once again, if you're not with us or if you're just tuning in now for the first time and you're loving what you're listening to so much, you can find us on Twitter at twitter.com slash filmfightclubau and on Facebook at facebook.com slash filmfightclub. All one word for both of those, obviously. Yeah. So take a fight with us or suggest what we should fight about. Well, one day I just want someone to really aggressively, like actually pick a fight with us in response to that on social media. Be like, exactly, like Paul Thomas Anderson is shit. Yeah, yeah, now. yeah. And we can just have this super heated episode that the title suggests we should have had long ago. That just gloves off, we grudge just, match. Truly divisive. Exactly, not like a gentleman's agreement club or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is what well, a gentleman's agreement. I haven't, we haven't, I haven't seen the movie in a long time, but I don't think it'll be too divisive a one. We are talking Billy Wilder in a moment, but first we just want to highlight some of the events that are happening online around town tomorrow night, as in April 30th, the Castle Main Documentary Film Festival are having a screening, a documentary and Q&A highlighting the issue of wellness, people in the creative industry, very essential right now. Friday night, there are five major events happening, which is very cool. One is the SF3. The smartphone FlickFest are having an online premiere of Blue Moon, their feature winner from last year. They're also opening for entries, and which are open for quite some months. And there's a special isolation category. Make a film three minutes in the confines of isolation, and it will be screened at the festival, which may go online, uh, restrictions pending. But there will be, again, more information on the article coming up on festivals and Falcon Screen. The Tasmanian Breath of Fresh Air Film Festival, which is the first major regional festival to go online, is screening this weekend, Friday through Sunday, and the ensuing two weekends. Their full program is up online. The Melbourne Queer Film Festival is playing Freak Show, one of them opening night, their opening night film from a couple of years back, and the competition Couch Critic, where you can write in and do little YouTube reviews of your favorite queer cinema, is on now. And the winner of that gets to have a all in pass to next year's festival. Monster Fest is continuing their Friday Night Fright Nights with the She Wong Massacre coming up this Friday at 9 p.m. Static Vision, who had a great QA with Guy Madden last weekend, which you tuned into, are having something called this is a great title, Canuxploitation, which is Canadian exploitation films in conjunction with Film Club, which will be happening on Friday night as well. Also on 
Friday night, as of today, as in Tuesday, the Human Rights Arts and Film Festival announced that they are going online later in May, and they will announce their program on Friday as well. Kino Sydney are having their short film night on May 4th. And as of Friday night, they're doing a 48-hour filmmaking challenge. Chris and I participated in a similar one, uh, which many Kino participated in last year, or a couple of 48-hour film challenges. Make a three-minute film, The Confines of Isolation, and screen it at Kino. But that's not just Kino. It's part of with another filmmaking collective too. And in addition to that, Ritz are running their isolation film festival. Shoot a short flick few minutes send it in and it's for prizes the winners get one of the winners gets a full pass to ritz or lido or whatever close cinema you are in and the other lastly the other festivals that i've just announced they are going online with screening events in may are the south african film festival australia which is very new they only launched last year and tilden melbourne melbourne's trans and gender diverse film festival so those are all the events happening you can look at and there's more details on those on festivals that's festevez.com but for now we are talking all things billy wilder Wow. Many uh, things, Billy Wilder. Possibly not all. We're not going to talk about the private lives of Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, haven't, I, haven't, I haven't seen a few of them. One, two, three, is that it? Yeah, I haven't seen I haven't seen anything past 1960. So the apartment is like, I capped off at a high and I'm like, okay, this is where I'm going to stop. I saw the latest one for me. Uh, yeah, me too. Um, I wasn't able to catch as many films as you did. I tried to watch every single film fresh for this episode, even ones I'd seen before. So it's there's a point yeah. where it's just too many films. So forgive me for not having comments on a couple of these ones. Yeah. And we are covering primarily three of his main flicks, films that we thought are very much in his greatest oeuvre. Those are Sunset Boulevard, my favourite of his films, Ace in the Hole, which all of us watched for the first time this weekend. And a lot of people think of it actually as his, uh, his best film, Ace in the Hole. It's a bit of a dark horse choice that's been gathering momentum in recent years, it seems. I'm prepared um, to dispute that. <laughs> I, I don't think any of us agree with that assessment. Mm. And the other one is The Apartment, which, you know, I think we've got two towering masterpieces to talk about tonight. We should note that I think more significant news than Ace in the Hole is Some Like It Hot and even to an extent The 70 Itch. However, we are going to discuss them briefly, but we did touch on them a couple of weeks ago in the context of the Howard Hawks episode. So what, Chris? Oh, no, I was just joking. Like 70 Itch isn't better or more significant than Ace in the Hole, I don't think. It just has the, the iconic imagery. But as a movie... We'll get to it. We'll get to that. I, I do think Seven Years has been more influential, but happy to discuss it, later in the episode. It, it's funny because in Sabrina, which is another of Billy Wilder's films, they actually go and see the play. They, they book uh, the seating for the play, so it's actually funny. There's that- a lot of self-referential stuff as there we are a lot of, yeah. discuss when it comes to the apartment. Um, Wilder, man, when I started watching cinema, Wilder was one of the most influential filmmakers to me in terms of early Hollywood cinema. And I think also it was formative for several generations of filmmakers just going through his filmography uh, later after having watched a lot of Simpsons. I would, every film I would say, oh, wait, I got that reference. I get that. They're reference. definitely big fans. Yeah, in, very inundated in popular culture. It, he's also the only filmmaker, I, I, I swear by the AFI 100 list, the original one, and he's the only filmmaker to have two films in the top 20, though he has multiple more throughout the list. He's incredible. And I, well, we'll get to Sunset Boulevard in a moment, but his greatest early, his most successful early feature was definitely Double Indemnity with Fred McMurray, who would reteam with later The Apartment. I don't have too much to say in it. It's a great film. I, one of the classic noirs, the great high talking, uh, bad villains who overwhelm the piece and the excellent Edward G. Robinson on the other end of the scale. And it's superb. It's great to this day. I, 
I, I don't actually have too much to say on this beyond it saying it's very good compared to the others. Raymond Carver co-wrote the script and the dialogue is just so good. I think it, it actually plays better for me somehow in this film than it does maybe even in his books, definitely in the other adaptations of his work out there. Um, but yeah, it might have the sharpest dialogue of any Billy Wilder movie. Is that an unfair assessment? It sets the tone for a lot of his later ones and is still, I think, the point people refer to in terms of the uh, quick, fast-talking noir dialogue of the 40s. You can see it emulated throughout any number of features. Um, it's, I think um, he handled it better in Sunset Boulevard, but it's still great. This is, it's a great plot, uh, but I'll be honest and say that it's a movie that I admire as opposed to being emotionally caught up in it. I don't know. It's, it's, so, it's such a cool film. I, so I feel like a bit of a remove, but it's, yeah. it's really well made. I, I think the only, I wouldn't say a problem, it's a more a stylistic thing. Because Billy Wilder, most of his screenplays are so tight and they're so action and beat orientated. I feel the noir, the best noirs, the ones that allow the scenes to breathe a little bit. It's more atmospheric. So I feel, yes, it's a technically brilliant film, but I feel there's not that kind of, you know, allowing you to actually feel what the characters are feeling and there's no scene to actually allow you to breathe. In fact, I feel some of the, the runtime of Billy Wilder movie, especially Double Indemnity is a great one, one example there, but I felt it could have been in a much longer film because some of the scenes were so rushed in terms of how we're getting to the next thing. The yeah, next and some... It's very formulaic in terms of screenplay where the tension is always... Plotted. I think you're right, but it didn't really bother me it, um, because the moving from plot point to plot point is so smooth. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, there was no, pretty much swept along by actually, it. Actually, yeah, I have no issue with that. In fact, I was taking a lot of screenwriting notes as like, you know, how to actually construct a tighter screenplay. Mm. Where it's like, this is fantastic. But love... at the same time, I feel like it... Like, this is not like Chinatown, which is going to define noir for the, you know, in 20 years from, from afterwards. Redefine noir. Years yeah. yeah, redefine, essentially. But the template is set in this movie mm. in terms of how basically, you know, you have all the setting and the characters and everyone, the double crossing, the triple crossing, I guess, which happens in this one. Yeah, I think, and mm. the matter of the dialogue and the story, God, it's, it's, I've never seen a script that has made insurance talk sound so sexy and interesting. And but on it's, the focus of the storyline, it's fascinating to me that we talked about Scarface a couple of weeks ago. And I, whenever I think of this film, I used to think of um, the film from one of my very favorite actors, James Cagney, White Heat, where they'd have bad guys who are sympathetic, but the film made a very made it very clear that they were bad guys, that the sympathy should fall elsewhere. But Wilder shifted it and you see it here and you see that trend still to this day where the sympathy of the filmmaker and the intendance of the audience is meant to rest on the bad guys there. It's unapologetic in that more than most films of the era. And I like that. You didn't see it a lot. Then you see it a lot more now in the moral fables, but it's something Wilder did very early on compared to his forebears. And even and something, he, him. something he continued to do as we'll discuss. Yeah, you know what I think of when I think of this movie? I think of the way Ed Mc McMurray ends every sentence with baby when he's talking to baby. Barbara Stanwyck. Baby. Like, <laughs> we're going to end of the road, baby. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, it's a long way to the bottom, baby. It reminds me of the reading in um, Home Alone in Angels with Filthy Stalls. Hey, uh, what, where he has a similar way of saying it. Relax, baby. 
<laughs> no, no, no. But like, actually, I read somewhere where the character of Johnny Bravo was based on this kind of depiction. Especially as, he know, did have great hair. How Johnny Bravo goes, yeah. Well, especially in how he says baby and Johnny Bravo is clearly famous for his baby catchphrase eventually later on. So it's, I, I read somewhere that, that, that was, this was the inspiration for that kind of over the top. Johnny Bravo is also kind of Elvis. Yeah. Like his weird amalgamation. But anyway, Billy Wilder. <laughs> that's, that's, that's Billy Wilder. That's double indemnity. His next big film only a year later was The Lost Weekend starring Ray Milland. I might, I, um, even though D- Double Indemnity was a huge hit, I might uh, contradict you to say that this was his biggest success before Sunset Boulevard because this won the Palm d'Or and the Best Picture. Lost Weekend? Yeah. One of the f- wow. only a few films to do it. Parasite and Marty being um, maybe the only two others. There might be Marty one day. I'd love to talk yeah, about it. Yeah, it's a great, great movie. With which one? Marty. Marty. Uh, from 55, one best picture. It's really good. Paddy Chayefsky, who wrote Network, wrote it. Uh, Network's coming up later when we talk about Ace in the Hole. Now, The Lost Weekend, Raymond, it is the first film, in my reckoning, to very seriously and uh, brutally and visually deal with the issue of alcohol dependency and the more, more significantly, the downward spirals people can experience in very bad points in their life and do so so visually and he many films including i think the apartment owe a debt to this and but while the does mention lost week and the, does allude to lost weekend in the context of the apartment again i don't know too much to say about this one oh, yeah 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 formative for its time uh, milan is excellent as he is in everything though dial in for murder i think he's still his best performance um, oh I, yes oh yeah dial in for murder was okay yeah though he was good in love story even though it was a small role he was really okay all right Everyone was good in Love Story. Okay. Film that seems to have fallen out of the cultural zeitgeast. Yeah, clearly. I, I've not seen it recently. so It's become very uncool. It's become sort of like a thing people use to... You Love Story? Yeah. The yeah. late 60s, 70s. Yeah, it was, yeah. It, was, it, was perfectly, it was perfectly good. It was perfectly good. Anyway, that, I don't really have too much to say on, on Lost Weekend, but Sunset Boulevard is, my reckoning, next... Real, uh, no, I think, I think we should touch upon a foreign affair uh, just oh, quickly yes, as well before that. I guess my first exposure to Marlene Dietrich, fantastic performance in this a, a one. Tr- it's sort true of a, life hero and great actress. Great actress and gosh, she's playing a, a sort of anti-hero slash cabaret performer and she really does own the cabaret scenes. I mean, the amount of, uh, as the young people say, big, big energy she has in those cabaret sequences is fantastic. So... I mean, just for that, it's 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 fantastic to see how, okay, how I, she's able. I don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll talk about Molly Dietrich's energy uh, when it comes to <laughs> the prosecution, which she also starred in. But, or but, comments for that. Part of it is fantastic because once again, it's using a noir plot to tell a conventional romantic comedy. So it's it's a classic Billy Wilder trope where he's using a trope of another genre to tell a story of another genre. So you know. With Sabrina, he does a similar thing where he's using musical style to tell a conventional romantic comedy kind of thing. But here he's using uh, noir to tell, a con- you know, it's basically a rom-com, but set in noir kind of setting. Have you seen The Blue Angel, by the way? Uh, it, no. If you're up for Marlena Dietrich uh, cabaret scenes, it's essential. <laughs> but also, it's a great performance even outside of that. So I'm not going to like, but, but actually it's one of the more... Because I feel her performance in this movie overshadows the main lead couple's performance in this one. So she's got such presence and you're kind of rooting for her character. So she's able to, even though you know that she's not uh, who she is, she's playing uh, 
a, a Nazi sympathizer. And actually, uh, so in that sense, you know, it's clearly outlined from the very beginning that she's not a good person. And yet she's able to bring such charm to the role, which is fantastic. Purely for her performance, I think it's a fantastic movie to rewatch. So that is a foreign affair, not a foreign correspondent, not foreign correspondent Hitchcock film. I always got those two confused. And next up is Sunset Boulevard, 1950, The Great. It is 12th on the American Film Institute's Hunt Greatest Film Lists of All Time. It is starring William Holden, Gloria Swanson, Eric Vostroheim. It is about a screenwriter, Joe Gillis, played by Holden, whose car breaks down on Sunset Boulevard and encounters Norma Desmond, played by Gloria Swanson, in one of two, one of several extremely meta roles. Mm. Um, This film was doing meta long before it was cool. And he begins a relationship with her. Now, what this this is one of the great noir masterpieces for me. It's this and Seeing in the Rain were the two films that have filmed for me, and I think brought more broadly in society as well, the enduring image and idea of what early Hollywood is. Seeing in the Rain has a very uh, much more upbeat one. This is obviously a much darker one. They're very, very counter to each other in terms of the way that they represent Hollywood. And I would say that they exist on two separate ends of the scale of truthfulness. Um, Singing in the Rain is like the archetypical MGM style musical. And Sunset Boulevard is reportedly the film that made Louis Mayer, the last M in MGM, say that Billy Wilder should have been sent back to Germany. Wow. When he started at the premiere. Yeah, because he was so offended by the way that it shone a light on the darker sides of Hollywood. Actually, I mean, that's, that's a good point. No, no, because a lot of Wilder films actually deal with a lot of serious issues with the lightness of touch. Sunset Boulevard is very different from that way because I think it's actually one of it's the Wilder films which is really emotionally heavy. And well, this... shy away from a lot of... And the scenes read a lot. So it's not, it's not a typical Wilder plot of like, you know, action beat from action beat. It's actually one of the few films which is more psychologically driven. Agreed. Um, but this period of his filmography is very dark, right? You've got The Lost Weekend, then you've got Sunset Boulevard, then Even you've got Ace in the Hole, and yeah, Stargate right? Yeah. Which, oh, sorry, well, the, all, my heart is the dark. Still, yeah, but it's my, it's still much lighter than, than these two, even though it has... I guess, yeah, Sabrina then is a turn into much more lighter comedy. Yeah, stuff, which the, 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 I think we need to call attention to how ahead of his time Billy Wilder was in terms of the subject matter he chose. The Lost Weekend was trailblazing in its depiction of alcoholism. Yeah. Sunset Boulevard was showing something that I think is strikingly realistic at a point in time where Hollywood was very much about the fantasy. Yeah. And as you could see- And it laid um, the template for so many other movies coming forward. Yeah. Basically, will be redoing the shtick. I mean, they've not reinvented, a, it's been difficult to break away from that image. Mm. of how to depict I, a you know, star in crisis, essentially. Yeah, this will be a recurring thing I'll talk about as we go over these films. And they're absolutely trailblazing for their historical context. But going over this point I was making about Sunset Boulevard, I hadn't seen this film in about 15 years. Watching it again, I was struck at how honest it feels. Oh, yeah. It yeah. feels real to me, which is not something I can't say for a lot of noir films because they are, are so constructed and heavily stylized and this film doesn't sacrifice the style that makes noir filmmaking so memorable but it exists at a space where it also registers as heightened naturalism i would say i think on that there's a very fine line between romanticism of 
something that is considered to an extent unknown and pivoting and treating that um, through a much more extreme dark lens. I think the reason this feels real and believable is that it doesn't, A, it doesn't treat a Hollywood relationship like it's some great um, pie in the sky. It treats a Hollywood relationship like many relationships actually are in Hollywood that people know about, didn't talk about as one of uneven power dynamics. It shows on the other side of that, a much another realistic relationship which is much more wholesome much more which better something you would aspire more towards uh, and bring those in such stark contrast it's always been the handsome leading man and will he get the girl in this and this just throws yeah. it entirely on its head and part of that is Gloria Swanson this is her first major film role since um, the film that we actually see in the film she as correct, Gloria yeah. Swanson, we, we, we see Norma Desmond, quote unquote, in her last silent role. And that's actually Gloria one of Gloria Swanson's in not Gloria Swanson's last film before this. And there are sequences where you believe that she is a person who has um had an extremely difficult life, uh, but also someone who is absolutely wrapped in um the romanticism of Hollywood. The, her character itself is entirely analogous to uh, the economy which Wilder is pursuing it. It's it's brilliant. But she brings a silent film esque style to her acting, um, which totally serves the fine line of ridiculousness that and tragedy that her character is sitting on. You know that like that she yeah. is a character who's believing herself to be the myth of herself and taking on the characteristics of, you know, I, I'm i this big acting, big presence. It's, it's almost like, and I think in a lot of sequences in front of the mirror where she's just sitting down and then mm. she's looking at it and also the ones in the driving sequences where she, she feels like if she puts, uh, takes away the mask of the character that she's wearing and she has nothing else. So she always has to be in character to somehow, you know, be herself because there's nothing else. She doesn't have a personality beyond her character that she's played. I think the casting of Swanson here, because it's, of the meta, yeah, it's amazing. Because of the meta reasons that Glenn brought up earlier, it's really a stroke of genius because it allows them to say, look at me in this DeMille film and then cast the real DeMille. Yeah. Because, Ready for my close uh, up, indeed. Yeah, <laughs> Gloria Swanson, yeah, was, was a muse of Cecil B. DeMille. Yeah. So, and she was the, in a lot of films. She stopped. Her career changed when the talkies came in. But it's more than that. Stroheim was a famous director in the early part yeah. of the era of filmmaking, which is yeah. analogous to his character. And One of the great geniuses in the early days of Hollywood. And one of my favorite scenes of the film is when, and I'm sure these actors absolutely loved being in it, but Buster Keaton, a few of the very early stars, some of which she actually references in her speech to Gillis early in the film, just come in for a card game. It's, it's great. It's, it's mm. great. The, the, I really thought this film was timeless, um, which might be a strange thing to say about a film that's so situated in this era. It's totally of the time because it's at that point where um, Hollywood was starting to have a history. Yeah. We had these legends like Buster Keaton, Von Stroheim, who are sort of fading into the rearview mirror, um, but they were still around. And we had the the culture of Hollywood it was well and truly changing and shifting. But I don't think if you made a new film um, set in this time with this plot, it would be any more engaging than this one. This it somehow has not been dated at all in in the hold is able to keep on you and the suspense and the depth of the emotions and textures. I agree. I mean, part of the reason is because I think the zeitgeist that it's presenting comes back 
after decades and two decades. It's a similar thing with Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is also trying to talk about a time in Hollywood when there's change. So I feel Sunset Boulevard is timeless because of that, because it's drawing on those sequences and that time-like sort of loop that keeps coming back about periods of change and how Hollywood is seeing itself in those kind of time periods. So I feel it's fantastic because of that. So there's a lot of that which keeps coming back up over and over again. It's a marvelous film. It's one I revisit. Had the great joy of visiting every few years. We're going to be talking about this in much more detail on the podcast. In addition to Ace in the Hole, Starlight Seventeen, Seven Year Itch, The Apartment, Irma Leduce, um, Something Like It Hot, others. Yeah. Um, Spirit of St. Louis, huge filmography. We'll so, be also on just to give another shout out. We'll be on at. 12.30 a.m. It's been going on for a few weeks now, so you can consider it an official part of our schedule. Uh, Film Fight Club also airs at 12 a.m. on it's Thursday morning, Wednesday night, in its entirety, the whole podcast version. So if you're up all night, uh, unable to sleep, and it's 12.30 a.m. and you've listened to us tonight, just tune in then for the rest of the episode. Otherwise, it will be back up on podcasting platforms. Yes, iTunes and Spotify, subscribe. Um, Declan Green, Google thank as well. you for letting us know for Billy Wilder. We are open for suggestions, whether it's directors, topics, subjects, let us know. Stay tuned for The Sonic Assassin next. Stay safe. Keep watching movies. Enjoy them. Watch them with friends. It's a good experience. We're thoroughly enjoying it. And it's one of the best ways to get going through what is a very difficult time. This has been Glenn Fowling, San Chris Evans of Ratneru on Film Fight Club. Stay safe. Enjoy movies. Have a lovely night. Good night. Welcome back to Film Club, where we are talking all things Billy Wilder and now Sunset Boulevard. It's actually really nice to talk about this movie because it is considered by many to be one of the greatest films ever made and certainly one of the greatest American films ever made. It's consistently high on all these lists for good reason. I know to an extent it's because Hollywood loves to talk about itself, but it is one of the defining films about the industry and yep. certainly one of the first they ever saw about it. It's the first William Holden film I ever saw, an actor we're going to go on to talk about with Sabrina, who made many, many more exceptional films. Everyone in this film is. It's, this is the only time that uh, Wilder made a film about Hollywood, I believe. Uh, yes. Well, yes, about Hollywood. Uh, he did a lot of but, films about the media, but not about Hollywood. Yeah, mm. but there would be a lot of references. For example, the film producer named Sheldrake in this film is the same name that will pop up in the apartment. The boss is also named Charles Drake in the apartment. So mm. it's very self-referential, but yes. The thing about Sunset Boulevard, um, we were talking about it before as kind of like a take on film noir. Um, but what strikes me about it is the way that it plays with the noir template. It feels like noir in the sense of it's got a guy running from the law, um, you know, getting into a dark situation with a femme fatale and it has kind of hard-boiled voiceover um, and a mystery intrigue. 
but the feel is nothing like a conventional noir because it has such a sense of the gothic for one yes yeah uh the mansion and the set design of it and and just the pure atmosphere of the place norma desmond lives in with her european handyman is with the monkey oh yeah setting oh, yeah. off the tone straight off the bat yeah the, the kind of there's an edge of of the surreal to it i mean even even the butler which is played you know fantastically by Max, you know, eric von Stroheim. Stroheim. yeah yeah and yeah. Stroheim, excuse me so it's it's a beautiful set, and and you're right, Chris. I think it's an important point to draw that it's using all those noir tropes, but the treatment is very different. It's and very much like a Del Toro kind of a treatment of the Gothic in that sense. Well, the the story is not conventional noir either. It, yeah. it follows some of the noir, but it, it's 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 more about a psychological sort of uh, yeah, I guess a... descend into madness kind of thing rather than an actual noir template where. Mm-hmm the protagonist doesn't know what he's into it's about the gothic and what's so clear about the gothic is the classic the best gothic texts frankenstein dracula to name some of those famous examples it centers on a villain a figure a visage who is timeless or ageless and therefore is terrifying a lot of the main one of the main themes of the film and certainly evinced by norman desmond explicitly is the idea that stars are ageless i'm ageless but more than that it plays into that by her being paused in time and as if her watching herself paused in time like it was in the the 20s through the 50s like it would be that way forever yeah that's why as like i was saying earlier it's it's such a film of its time um in that this was the um one of the earliest times that it felt like hollywood had a history that it had some dark secrets of the past and that we could finally address the idea of what becomes of the dream factory sometimes it doesn't end so happily that there is actually a trail of tragedy in of um, the lives of some of the artists and business people who tried to make Hollywood their home. uh, That is completely counter to the way that the stories Hollywood produced usually ended and the way it liked to present itself. That's true. But at the same time, what I do feel is that the film strikes a very good balance between being critical of Hollywood as an establishment, but also paying its due respect to actual revelation figures who did contribute to the environment. So for example, Cecil yeah. Dinell, he, he comes across purely as an honest figure in this film and he actually is not reduced to a caricature, but there are some producers who are portrayed that way, especially who are in charge of the uh, Paramount Studios in this film. So mm. it does strike a good balance about the true pioneers and the power breakers who deserve to be treated with respect. I think Billy Wilder is very cautious in that approach to make sure he doesn't ridicule them and their I think, journey and their kind of, uh, I guess, what they've given to Hollywood as such and make sure that they're treated with respect. Same with Buster Keaton and other kind of small figures that pop up who actually have yeah. up, given so much to the actual establishment. But then it is, I think the criticism is of the machinery of Hollywood it's itself and what that does to the studio executives as such. People who don't understand films, but are in charge of the studio system. Yeah, this is such a well-known sort of idea, the Hollywood tragedy. But I think it was a pretty groundbreaking approach, especially in film, as opposed to another piece of media commenting on Hollywood when this was released. And on the rewatch, it still feels very measured, which is what surprised me. But it's more than the way it treats the studio system. 
it, it even romanticizes the modern contemporaneous era of filmmaking when we meet them people are dedicated and involved but yeah, it shows he doesn't hate hollywood of, it's very respectful not at all shows yeah. the lack of upward mobility in this era it also is highly critical of the classic studio system of message films the type of narratives that people want to put out it's taking a whole era of hollywood and saying there were great things about it there were romantic things about it but there were also parts that were very ill thought and it may be the install the to this day because of how good the film is the enduring statement on a lot of these trends and the thing is talking as we were about showing respect versus caricature in norma desmond it manages to do both i think what makes this interesting in regard to the playing on noir tropes that we were talking about is you could say that Norma Desmond is the femme fatale that William Holden gets mixed up in, right? You, yeah. You know, um, yeah. in broadly speaking. Yes. But in comparison to how it is in the, in the noirs, usually the femme fatale is the most sympathetic figure in the film. I think yes. she, at first she comes across as so ridiculous um, in the, her the vanity, damsel, yeah, the narcissism. That needs to be saved at that point. Yeah, that this huge, empty location she lives in, talk about a metaphor with uh, finely polished, slick surfaces everywhere, but a void of sadness at the center where it's always raining or miserable outside. Um, but uh, <laughs> she has dreams that Wilder depicts as being worthy of respect, even as yes. they're ridiculous. There's something beautiful about the way that she's still trying to hold on i mean it's, it strikes that that balance between criticism um it, it will it's, it's tragic yeah. it's tragic because there's something redeemable in it and, and a good contemporary film that i'm thinking about relatable yeah a good contemporary film as a comparison point that i'm thinking about recently was Corrie as a truth and Catherine deneuve's uh, performance in that which was also using a lot of these tropes about striking caricature and still giving respect that you right. know, very meta in that sense. Yeah, but, but, but the difference is Corrida is a very warm filmmaker uh, oh, and totally. Wilder is often very cynical. Yeah, but going back to the femme fatale, I think how Wilder plays with that is also interesting because let's not uh, be under any kind of presumptions here. William Holding's character also deliberately manipulates the situation. So it's not as if the femme fatale takes advantage of him. Well, I wanted to get to that. inserts himself into the scene. So it's almost that he's equally responsible to get messed up in the situation. He is not sympathetic in my he's opinion. He's not. I don't think so. He's a great protagonist in how he drives the narrative and how there's an air of intrigue about how is he going to resolve this situation. Yeah. But gradually... Initially, I think he manipulates her at that point to actually get himself in that position of being a script doctor. I, so actually, you know, and that's a very interesting point. Because initially in noir tropes, it's a femme fatale who comes in and, you know, lures our detective protagonist into a world of, you know, a murky world. But in this case, that's not nearly the case. It's not as simple. Now, we, see now, we saw elements of this play out early on in Double Indemnity. He's really refined a similar triangle here. Um, the film I would have to compare it to is one of my all-time favorite American films. I consider possible one of the very great American tragedies, which came out only the following year, A Place in the Sun, which is a very different film with a very different context, but it also has a love triangle of sorts with a person who is not entirely sympathetic, but in cases trying to do good, and a figure he is aspiring to be with a figure who is a foil and where there is a morally fraught conflict that neither character 
are is entirely sympathetic, but what makes them appealing and more of a relatable is that um, Norma Desmond, after all these years, she has the screen, like so many others in Hollywood, she has the screenplay she wants to make. She wants to make Salome. She's still hustling. Same with Joe Gillis. He's a screenwriter who the biggest recognition he got is a spec bit in one of the script he wrote. People aren't taking him seriously, but he wants what everyone else wants. We know he's not necessarily that talented, but he's trying and he's reaching and he's doing what he has to do. And that was evidence in Hollywood in the 20s. It was evident in Hollywood in the 50s. And it's still month after month, we see similar narratives about Hollywood coming out. So the film, while it is very much of its time and rating of an era, is timeless in that respect. Yeah. As are a lot of Wilder films, including The Apartment Moreover, which we're going to have a lot of fun talking about later. Yeah. I mean, talking about another contemporary reference, Salome is a good point because the, in Pain and Glory, Almodovar's Plain Glory. What is the screenplay that uh, Antonio Banderas and his uh, other actor friend was working on as a comeback? Salome. So I guess, you know, it's interesting how... Well, if we're opening the doorway to talking about contemporary films and filmmakers in relation to this, there's no way that I can't use this excuse to drop in a David Lynch reference. <laughs> if you're a real Lynch devotee, Sunset Boulevard is such a key film to understanding where Lynch is coming from and what he's trying I to do. I thought this is your domain, so I was not even going to bring it up. So right, okay. right. Yeah. Like <laughs> well, and Drive is kind of a surrealist refraction of some of the themes and ideas in Sunset Boulevard, if the name already doesn't tip you off. Um, for, you know, it, it's its own thing, don't get me wrong. It's, it's very different in the approach, you know, because it's young actors instead of an old actor, but it's the same kind of idea about what Hollywood does to people and the contrast between the dream that they project and the tragic aftermath for a lot of people. Um, but yeah, Lynch is obviously a big fan. His character in uh, Twin Peaks is called Gordon Cole, which is, you know, the name of one of the producers in Sunset yep. Boulevard. It's so, I, that's one of my more favorite David Lynch films, and that's because it also takes a cynical, it takes a cynical view, and that's fine, but the craft reflects it in its noir approach. Um, and the way Wilder does it, the, the wonderful thing about Sunset Boulevard, and there, there's a, the film is very deliberately named. I've been to Sunset Boulevard. It's called Sunset Boulevard for a reason. It's beautifully sunlit, it's stunning, but here, even in daytime, um, it feels alienating and suffocating because the way the film was shot. Um, again, he does this excellent effect later in the apartment wanting to show New York as alienating and isolating. With We've seen versions of the story, and I'll use an exact um, analogy, the musical version of Sunset Boulevard by Angela Webber, which is not very good. It takes the story, but takes out the noir elements, and it's not, it's, it's not a great musical. It's not a great adaptation because it doesn't underline the fear of it. It doesn't underline the gothic nature of it. It just leaves that by the wayside. You need that, and Wilder could have made a slightly happier film, but he knew what level was playing it, or rather, more comic film. There are comic elements, and the opening, the sound, the opening sequence where Jugulus is lying in the water. Um, if you look it up, they are is actually an alternative version, which was originally shot and almost released, where it's just a bunch of uh, bodies sitting in a morgue talking about how they each died, and it's it's in a sort of film that didn't take itself seriously enough. Sunset Boulevard knew that it was a film that took its needed to take itself seriously and did. Yeah, that well, the the bodies at the morgue was that was the original opening for Sunset Boulevard, like that was filmed. It was it was done. It was in the can, and then they yeah, decided, right. wait a minute, this is no good. Reshoot yeah. the beginning. Sunset Boulevard feels so serious and so heavy, honestly. Um, but man, the atmosphere of this film is intoxicating, and I think the this is, 
I would say his most visually accomplished film. It is. I mean, each frame, and I think we, we I mean, let's not get too technical, but I, there's something to be said about how no, let's, let's. Deliberate, <laughs> deliberate he is in terms of blocking. And it's, yeah, in this film. Oh my God. It's incredible. In that, I mean, I'm thinking of that New York, uh, sorry, no, New York, New Year's Eve party scene when he realizes that he's the only guest. And yeah, yeah, yeah. He realizes that he's, you know, that she loves him, essentially. The reveal. Yeah. Oh and my God, that is the way such that deliberate mansion. framing to show the perspective and POV shots. Yeah. Because the, the reveal never comes through dialogue. It comes through perspective and the camera, camera movement. And that's when he realizes, oh my God. The I way it feels in this you know? are so well handled between yeah. the identity of one main character, um, certainly the conclusion, not the, overall the, at all. The thing about the, the reveals in this film is it manages to foreshadow a, a lot of things. No, um, nothing comes across as too big a stretch or a twist when it, it's dropped in, um, but it does so in such an efficient way that it doesn't feel like hints are being dropped. It's, it just flows naturally from the I narrative. the car, perfect example. Exactly. Searing example. Yeah. Talking about uh, the imagery and the blocking, there's just so many perfect placements of the yeah. characters within the frame. The bit the where... One, per one perfect shot was basically made for this right. movie. The, the part where Norma Desmond's dreaming about her big comeback and she steps back up into the light and she framed from below where... Projected from the back. Yeah, projected from the back while Giddis is looking at her. Another moment that really struck me is um, when he's walking, Giddis is walking with the uh, writer who he, um, script reader, the aspiring oh, writer. Artie? Artie, yeah. Yeah. Walking along and seeing the, um, along the, the back lot at night and seeing people painting, you know, it because it plays on the ways that films are, sh you, you know, were often yeah. shot in this day with on a studio set with a fake backdrop. You know, we're just conditioned to accept fake backdrops as being real. So to show them walking along in wide shot right around the moment that things are coming to a conclusion and the fantasies are starting to crumble and to show people actually painting the clouds in what you would otherwise accept as, oh, that's just the night and the backdrop. Yeah, really. Like those wonderful moments in film where um, you hear music, you think it's a soundtrack, but it's actually a music uh, blazing textual to the scene. I it's think wonderful. Blazing Saddles did it first. Yes, it, it uh, did. Yeah, but it but it continues to be copied in a way that most I mean, it, don't. It's, it's wonderful. And the other thing I think we should bring up is, I mean, Glenn, you mentioned initially in our you know the radio version of the show about the driving sequences and how incredible mm. they are in revealing inner psychology of the characters. Because I think there's no one who does... A drive is not just a drive and showing. It is... It is the dialogue is always often a kind of a cat and mouse game between the characters. And I think Billy Wilder is such an expert in setting up, you know, your expectations. What's going to happen beyond that scene in the drive? It is such a wonderful, tense way of setting up screenplay in that sense, which is, I mean, amazing now that I think about it. And yeah. there's so many of these sequences in my, recurring in so many films. My favorite sequence in the car is actually one where they pull, stop and he's going to get cigarettes or something yes. and he gives him the money. Just this nice little touch letting us know the power dynamic. But on the matter of the driving sequences, of these, of these films in this era, they're almost all the same, where it's one or two characters in a, there's, there's three moving elements. There's one or two characters in a car, there's the car and there's the environment and they couldn't film people driving proper so they filmed them in a car 
with a set or superimpose the set later. Wilder improved upon this technique dramatically throughout all these films. You even see it in Ace and Hall, which one we're talking about next, where all three levels are moving or active. And it just brings a little more to the eye, made it a little bit more believable. Uh, people were lazy with this back in the 30s and 40s. So just put people in a car and let them drive around. Um, Sabrina is a good example. There's a great driving scene with Audrey Hepburn where they go around and look at houses. Oh, um, yeah. I, yeah. He, also he, with William Holden. A lot more with, yeah. and it's the perfect example where Chris made the point, we're just conditioned to accept, okay, it's a fake looking set, it's fine. Certainly, even in these later films, they he used these, like in Irma Laduce. But here, he just improved on the technical craft just that bit. And at the time, people weren't either bothering or didn't have the adeptness to do so. And these films were all the better for it. You spoke before, Virat, about the New Year's party, and that just reminded me of yeah. a unrelated thought I had about that whole sequence, which is amazing. Um, there, there's two New Year's parties, right? You know, oh, yes. goes from the. I was talking of, about when she realizes that she's in love. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. But yeah, he moves from Norma Desmond's house to this uh, this other one that Artie's yeah. at, and yeah. you know, populated by a bunch of movie industry types. Yeah, struck me watching that scene, which is so unusual for me for any Hollywood film of this era, is that it felt real. Like watching that party yeah. scene, I totally believed this is what how um, people in Hollywood would talk. Yeah, this is how people in Hollywood would talk and act at a party in 1949. Yeah, it did not in any way feel like uh, fabricated. Oh, young people, this right. is what they're like, or like movie dialogue. And the atmosphere and the sound design and the way it's packed in with people and the way they kind of drunkenly move between crowds mm. feels so shockingly authentic. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's weird because we're conditioned to now fall back into the Baz Luhrmann kind of thing of how usually party scenes are filmed. And that's what we have now begun to see what Hollywood <laughs> parties would be like. Exactly, you know, where it is hyper-stylized and people just name drop, you know, famous people's names all the time. But this actually felt like I could get snippets of actual conversation of, you know, what these people are actually interested in. So, you know, the, the gossip columnists are talking about gossip of that period of the time, of mm -hmm. what was actually making the news. And, you know, they're, they're playing themselves. And I looked it up and they're, they're, they're actual gossip columnists right. were famous at the time, which is fantastic. The and meta touches are great. There's a real okay. inside baseball quality to this film that... It is authentic. Yeah, and, and, and that makes it more believable when the, the side, I guess, romance happens with Betty and, and Joe because it kind of feels lived in. Mm. And you feel like these two belong in this world. It does, doesn't come across, you know, oh, you know, by the way, this is now just happening as a plot development because these two people are in a similar stage of their lives and they're trying to get, you know, ahead of the ladder and stuff. And mm. you kind of feel their struggle because you've seen what the people at the top are like. And, you know, how far they have to get to. So you clearly see their progression in terms of, like, where they have to get to, to be included in the club, club, per se. Yeah, the hustlers, mm. we get it. And yet, and, and yet, you know, but it's, it's a very interesting way of framing the hustle. It's not like there are parts which are completely excluded, which is usually how scenes are shot, where it's like, here's the VIP area, you're not allowed to go here, kind of thing. It's not like that. It's like, you know, there are certain people you just don't know how to approach because they're talking a different language. Yeah. They're talking a different game. And you're like, you're just, just not there yet. So it's, and it's, yeah, you're right. It's just more real. I just looked up the actress. I was sort of curious to see what she, um, she is in. She was, she's been, she's been in quite a few. She was great. 
Um, Everyone is yeah. great in this. It's, it's, it's fantastic. Oh, yeah. What, possibly one of the main people involved in the production who could still speak to it. Really, yeah, fantastic stuff. One more thing. Um, I just remembered we mentioned Network earlier briefly. Yes. Um, since I rewatched Network uh, just a few weeks back, um, I realized that a lot of the writing of William Holden's character in Network is calling back to the writing of uh, his character here because in both films, their characters have this inclination to speechifying about, oh, this is what happens in the story when we get to third act and summarizing the events of the film, talking about it with this inside media um, perspective as if it is a, a script. And That's both characters to... get it thrown back on them. Um, best, yep. I, I will give it network. I think Shevsky had the better scene in that regard. But it, it's definitely calling back to this, though. There's no way oh, yeah. that he wasn't totally. writing that with awareness of uh, but, cynicism of media, moreover. So that was Sunset Boulevard, without hyperbole, one of the great masterpieces. And, and it holds up. I mean, oh, of course. Yeah, it, it held up, up shockingly well for me. <laughs> yeah. And the next film we're talking about is only the following year, he was churning out yeah. a lot of movies. Should we just change our name to Film Appreciation Club? Because this is what it is. Yeah, there's not many fights happening tonight. (laughs) Yeah, we'll have very few disagreements here. A lot of appreciation. Um, We may disagree on the ranking. I certainly think Sunset Boulevard is his best. I'm willing to stand by that. But the next, I don't think the next one we're talking about is his best. I do think it's a very good film. I think we all agree on that as well, which is also the problem. (laughs) Ace Ace in the Hole. Yeah. from 1951 it stars kirk douglas who only recently passed away at the ripe old age of 103 had an amazing run and it is about his newspaper man who happens upon a town in albuquerque out of a job but wanting one and wanting to make his way back to the big leagues in new york city as he puts it finds that a man has been stuck in a mine and sees this as an opportunity to lead a national potential national story and get his name up under the big bylines. Now, this film was prescient in a number of respects. Um, many, everyone, audiences will remember the Thailand cave rescue very recently. Certainly anyone who lives in Australia pre-06 will know the names Beaconfield, Beaconsfield and Threadbow. But this is about the media circus and the crowd and what came up ancillary to the, around the ancillary, ancillary to the core issue of getting a man Mm. out of a hole who was stuck there it's inspired by similar cases of media circuses around trapped people that happened in, in america in the past but this film and in, in amping up the satire to sh- depict a new level of of media circus and extreme levels of lack of journalistic ethics ends up being highly predictive of the actual direction that <laughs> journalism would go in Back then, it was an exaggeration. Now, beyond the heightened style of the acting, there's not much about it. Maybe some of the extremes of Kirk Douglas's character here, but there's not much about it that isn't extremely close to how these things play out. And to note, this statedly was the inspiration for the season three episode of The Simpsons where Bart gets stuck in the well, um, one of the very, very classic episodes. This was... It was great. He's always great. I want to, before we get into the ethics of this and the role perspective of the media, I'd love to talk about Kirk Douglas, who we've never spoken about before. He's superb. He is mostly used to phys- very physical roles like Spartacus and action-oriented stuff, but he still brings his physicality 
to it, even in the scenes where he's not trying to impose himself or doesn't require him to physically exert himself. And it's not just about him jumping up on this or that, on, on this or that, or physically crawling into the mine. Um, he's a presence. Like uh, I would compare him in a sense to Charlie Hunnam, who even when he doesn't have a lot of these physical roles, I'm watching Nicholas Nickleby at the moment. He brings quite a strong hulking physical presence to everything he does. Um, I love the opening scene with Douglas, everything about it. He, he's great. Oh yeah, he's so good. He, the thing is, he is hammy often and he is quite hammy in this mm. but it works for the film because it's go- in working in that vein of extreme yeah. satire and so his character is just so goddamn evil yeah that his outsized yeah. performance like, matches the material we're gonna talk about network immediately again network has is a great film and it's still a great film but is and it is not to the discredit of the movie but it is aged purely in the respect that many things in it have come truer and you wouldn't see it through the same eyes you would in 1976. And I wonder, I think Ace in the Hole, while it might've played as a, more as a satire in 51, plays much less for satire now. There are plenty of people out like Kirk Douglas's character. We've seen media circuses pop out around similar situations. I could see a lot of the events in this film playing and out in succession. The 24 hour news cycle has made the way that media operates more ridiculous that you push further to try and wring stories out of nothing. So this has become, as you say, I, not, no I, longer satire, but just a representation. Yeah, of that's, that's, that's the one thing I'm actually interested in because when I was watching it, I don't think it felt like Wilder was deliberately playing it to a level of like satire in terms of humor. I believe it was intended to be kind of a dark satire. Not funny, haha. Yeah, I, I think I think it's more just more bleak, if anything else. Oh, it, don't get me wrong; it's totally bleak. Yeah, I mean satire. Yeah, I don't think it's as funny as it may have been intended to. I think it, it's while it's very self-aware as to be like, you know, here's what I think the future is going to look like, and and the tone is, I think, pretty precarious in the sense where it's bordering the line of yes, there are caricatures in the sense people are going hammy in their evil plans. But it's also very obviously trying to show you the real consequences of that. Yeah, it's true. Like, you know, so it's it never goes into the tone of like, here's what's that. You know, it's so satirical that it's divorced from reality. No, no, yeah, it it it's interesting how time treats a film like this. I would yeah. say compared to Network, this is actually aged better. There's aspects of Network where I think, oh well. That's just. They that's wouldn't very, give terrorists the show necessarily. Yeah, exactly. That's very 1970s, you know, Black Panther era, civil rights movement, Vietnam. Everything's you know a little bit crazy. Um, I think Network sometimes goes a little bit too far out of its way, whereas this is just bang on. Yeah. Well, well Network is, Network was based on the uh, kidnapping of was it Charles Lindbergh's granddaughter and also oh, yes. and also the christine chabrick incident yes and we're going to talk about Lindbergh later in another con- entirely different context but that was rooted that while that was rooted in reality it took it off in very different tangents this isn't necessarily rooted in a key incident but it plays out as one realistically thinks this very well could I believe, I believe it actually was in the sense that there, there was a story of someone who was trapped at the bottom of the well and, it, and media flurry around it or something that happened in the 20s or 30s, I think. Okay. That was served as a source of inspiration for this. But Wilder took it in a wilder direction. Yes. <laughs> uh, on that, I, I will give one criticism 
of this. We haven't really given a criticism of Wilder too much yet. I like the performances in this. We're going to talk a little bit more about Kirk Douglas, but the characterization of the minor, like I believe there are any number of wonderful souls out there who are exactly like this, but it reminds me of every Van Johnson film ever made, where he's just this in, always endearingly, everlastingly nice guy. And everything he says is, even though he's in the minus to the better than someone else. And I appreciate that it was, he was portrayed like that and written like that to accentuate the worst aspects of Kirk Douglas's character and the other characters, but. And it, it it's how it's operated to satire. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I didn't find him too distractingly nice. He in, seemed, in, yeah, he is like a nice guy, but I didn't think like, oh, this guy is just like a saint. In, in terms of criticisms, I guess. I thought he's more just like a guy. Sorry to cut you off. I, I just sorry, thought sorry. this is a guy who is in a bad situation and, and trying to be giving and generous and thinking about things. Yeah. Uh, in terms of criticisms, I mean, this for me is definitely one of my least favorite Wilder films. Wow. And the, the reason for that is I feel for the first time, uh, this is also, I hadn't watched it before, so this was actually a completely fresh watch, was because after the world has been set up and uh, I felt this was one of the few films for Wilder where I felt there was some padding in terms of the screenplay, which was needed to keep things going. It's yeah, not, I don't think it had to be two, uh, two hours. Yeah, actually, yeah. So this actually would have been perfect as an hour and a half a 90-minute slick Wilder film, which most of his you films still are. still cut that's an hour and a half. Yeah, so, I don't think you'd lose too much. I think there's a little bit no. of repetition in regards to things like the relationship with um, the wife of the minor from Kirk Douglas's character. I love the setup. All oh, yeah, the, the setup, setup is great. It's, it's just like, it's, yeah. it's really I'm, stretched a lot. Like, you know, and yeah. I'm like, you know I, I get it. I get the point. Now what's the next thing? That I totally want? agree with you. So um, that's I, where I felt... Because screenplay is one of his strengths, and I feel Wilder, I often go back to him and be like, oh my God, this is moving so quickly. And this is a film where, for the first time, I felt it's not as smooth. I wonder if... It's only criticism in relation to his other work, because for any other filmmaker, we wouldn't criticize it because it's still a great film. But just because Wilder set a standard where his screenplays are so smooth... I wonder if part of this is a result of the film being aged, that... Back then, when this idea was novel uh, and was seen more as an outrageous satire, looking at the way the media circus builds and builds and builds would have held more intrigue. Whereas now we take a lot of these things that happen gradually as a given. Yeah, yeah fair enough. I think, I, I think so. And I think it would have also meant the opening scene would play very different. I really like when Kirk Douglas moses his way into the office and just says, I'm the best. Here's all the reasons I'm good. You have to hire me. And, and the segue to one year later, just like just like that. And it's, it's <laughs> oh, it was great. And to, to the credit, also to the credit of Douglas, but also Wilder, that if that equivalent scene played in any modern TV or drama with Boston Legals and the suits of the world, it'd just be a few one-liners, a lot of fast talking, and some Boston Legal music. Whereas <laughs> <laughs> of but Douglas, you're good. Just go ahead and sell this dialogue. You he totally it. sold it. Uh, he yeah. totally sold it. But Greg Douglas, it's like uh, you know. I can totally imagine in a William Shatner kind of a role, to be honest. William he, Shatner could have done this. Also a great ham. Yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, everything William Shatner delivered in Denny Crane, you know, in Boston Legal was pure ham and delightful ham. Mm. Him and, I'm, uh, I'm thinking back when William Shatner took himself seriously, like Star Trek and Judgment at Nuremberg. Who's, and who's the guy who played Alan Shore? And he's great. I'm big for forgetting his, his James name. Spader. Yeah, of course. And James Spader is a wonderful ham. He's yeah, the yeah, yeah. best ham there ever is, he's, you know. 
another thing about this film that it's not a huge attraction for me, but it's an interesting trend that comes up in Starlight 17 and more over the apartment. There's a set of four or five men who are the reporters. And while they are five different characters, for the intensive purposes of the screenplay, they're all exactly the same character. And you see the setup play out again in the apartment, except it's five men who are all businessmen, um, senior executives in his office. And yes, they're five different people, but they're all the exact same person. It's very much a satirical device. I think for this film, yeah, I think it was deliberate that they're the same because they're interchangeable, which means they're representing a certain kind of ideology. So I think for this film, I think it makes sense because it's almost like they're they're all think the same way. Uh, Ditto for the apartment where the kind of, we'll get to this later, the the uniformity of everything is part of the point. Exactly, you know, everyone wants to to a certain level. But anyway, we'll get to that conversation later on. It it also works better by virtue of the narrative because they're all working for the same goal, whereas here they're actually working against each other. So it doesn't play out as well and as seamlessly. Yeah, I, I agree. I think you're right. On the notion of yeah, how it, this film represents the press, a few weeks back, talking about Howard Hawks, I commented on how His Girl Friday opens with this uh, text saying, well, we're not saying journalists are bad. Newspapers used to be really awful. And this is a, a story about back then when newspaper men had no ethics. Um, and I, I said, what's the point of that? It seems like they're just trying to not offend the people in the media back then. So maybe so they wouldn't savage their film. This time around, in, uh, no such warning. And apparently on release, it did get negative reviews from a few places because people were offended. Oh, you're tarnishing the good name of journalists. Interestingly, but- some have said that this film is actually inspired by the front page, which is the play, which his. Girl Friday was very loosely adapted from, which is a comedy about unethical journalists manipulating a story. Um, and uh, which Billy Wilder actually directed a film version of late in his career. I mean, I think Wilder definitely has a thing for unethical journalism because it's a theme that comes back in a lot of his films. Sabrina, most notably, later on, there are a lot of references about how did this get in the paper? I thought, and then, you know, Humphrey mm-hmm. Bogart saying, oh, I thought there was common news. You know, and that's clearly being leaked to the press. And then the uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the older sort of patriarchs of, of the family saying, you know, oh, those those crunky journalists. You Look, know. In, in Germany, Billy Wilder had a background as a journalist. <laughs> and I think also the play, um, the front page was clearly big for him. So he's drawing yeah. on a, a few things so, yeah. here. So he, I'm not sure. I'm not th- I don't think he hates journalists, but I think he's very aware of. I think he hates unethical journalists. Yeah, right. Well, it's the same as Sunset Boulevard, right? It's we don't think he hates Hollywood, but he Billy Wilder has a cynical outlook, and he has things to say about what he views as corrupt within the system. But actually, look at his characterization of Cecil B. DeMille, something much kinder. But and also look at my two favorite, two of the most greatest images in this film. One is of the crowds coming off the train going to see beautiful cinematography and beautiful cinematography a very different film which an amazing reveal the, the camera the camera revealing how big the crowds are suddenly fantastic but my favorite image however i Mary- is it's one of the very final images but it's of this same area and that leads into the much and that was one of the more pointedly cynical moments you see wilder returning to the um the, the emotional direction that we saw on sunset boulevard and that we'd see in a few of his other films before they took a happier uptick, which we're going to talk about later. Mm. I, I don't think we're doing justice to 
his outlook by saying he's cynical is because I don't think it's just that. I think it's more the fact that he's more measured in his outlook, where he's able to see both sides of the of the count of the coin. Right. On one hand, he's able to say there are aspects of this thing that are bad, but there are also aspects that need to be cherished and you know held in high regard. And he's able to show both side of the coin without tilting in one favor or the other yeah. remember Question. he shows the newspaper editor who's a great guy yeah he exactly. shows the people so, who absolutely. are trying to get over the corrupt politicians or the corrupt sheriff yeah so it's not all sort of broad strokes actually so in that sense i think there's a lot more nuance in there which yeah I think well i think that there's definitely a romanticism and sometimes a warmth and love for the characters in wilder's films but i wonder how cynical a filmmaker he would be if he had the luxury of making films now without any of the kind of restrictions he was working with wow. both artistic yeah. and commercial moreover if this film hadn't been a big box office flop because immediately after ace in the hole he started moving towards warmer warmer stories yeah we get and, sabrina's and all those kind of films. yeah and love in the afternoon and things like yeah. that and he also started adapting plays primarily instead of primarily working on original screenplays so I think he yeah. moved towards what is has already shown that it works mm-hmm. and it's popular. And uh, usually these, yeah. these were very light and um, crowd-pleasing films, whereas clearly with the, the films he was making in the, from Double Indemnity onward, it's mostly steps towards a, a bleaker and bleaker worldview until yeah. the bomb of Ace in the Hole. Yeah. Actually, that's, that's a very interesting point. I think Ace in the Hole is a, is a nice midpoint of his career where he's changing this outlook completely it, it was his first film as a as a producer working off the success of sunset boulevard um but yeah i, I think that the fact that this was not a success definitely had a big impact on him and the way that he approached hollywood storytelling moving forward yeah. the, the one thing that i still am very happy about is the fact that even though he adapted plays primarily in his later career it still never had a play-like quality to them. I mean, his big disagreement, but we'll get to that around my favorite at, Billy Wilder yeah. film later. Yeah, at a, uh, I disagree apartment. too. Okay. We'll get, the apartment we'll around the fifty year, the fifty-seven. Uh, okay, no, we, we, we'll see. So let's do some minute mark. We'll talk about years. I, I, I still think his visual understanding of the visual medium. Yes, it's not as inventive as Sunset Boulevard and and how that's that's done. But I still never felt like I was watching a three-act play, which or a five-act play, which a lot of these things were. He still, for most of his career, is uh, and with some real highlights, is a quite talented and inventive visual director. But we'll save we'll save some of yeah. my <laughs> yeah, other thoughts on yeah. that for later. This is, this is a more general comment on Hollywood, and it's reflected in a lot of Wilder's films. But as with the sets in Emily Deuce, and as we saw on a meta level in Sunset Boulevard, it was accepted at the time not only that films were adapted from plays would follow a similar structure thinking of all this william holden talk i was keep thinking of picnic and that we also with this it will be reflected in the set design wilder didn't mind so much later in his career certainly in the deuce would look like it was just filmed we'll, on a set of a play we'll get but to that yeah. earlier realistic film more realistic films and he's better ones not to say it's a bad, the artifice is bad, but certainly in Wilder's best films, he moved away from that. Sunset Boulevard for me being the primary example. Look, so Sunset indemnity. Boulevard and Ace in the Hole, um, Double Indemnity as well, but less so. But Sunset Boulevard and Ace in the Hole, uh, they're original screenplays and they're so cinematic. There's no way those could work on the stage. No. You, could, you could make a stage adaptation, but 
as they are, they feel really expansive in the way they use locations. Mm. And, I've, and location is super important. And the way location is filmed. I, on that, I can't wait to talk about the spirit of St. Louis and doing, doing the absolute opposite of that. That's a little but, bit later. Yeah. Um, on the Kurt Douglas character, I almost said Kurt Russell. Imagine Kurt Russell in this film. Um, I can imagine Michael Douglas in this film. Oh, totally. Yeah, but it's easy to imagine Michael Douglas in pretty much all Kirk Douglas roles. He just looks so much like him. I think, look, this, this, is, this is no way... I like Michael Douglas. I knew Michael Douglas before I watched any Kirk Douglas films. There's no way in a oh, situation... I, I thought you were going to say I knew Michael Douglas. A lot like, of people... What? I think a lot of people who watch Michael Douglas films, especially of a certain generation, have a certain fondness and memory and for the Kirk Douglas era and Kirk Douglas himself. I think they watch him and think, oh, I remember when Kirk Douglas was the biggest star in Hollywood. That was a time. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's interesting how goddamn evil this character is. He is so ruthless. The bad lieutenant with Nick Cage version of this film <laughs> would have had him, you know, romancing the miner's wife, um, you know, because clearly she's attracted to his power um and his spirit initially but instead of just doing the more ha 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 i'm so evil that i you know that i'm going to sleep with the this guy's wife while you know instead he's just so ruthlessly devoted to his cause that he totally rejects her in order to have more control over her to better engineer the story he's just monomaniacal we know he has a very clear look, motivation. A lot of films isn't set up here. It's clear. I want to get from Albuquerque to New York. This is my path. And my favorite bits of this effect is when he's chatting with the miner and he's like, we're going to be friends, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm going to move to New York where this is done, but you can come visit me. Yeah. I'm like, that is so brutal. Mm. In the middle of all this, this poor guy lumbering under this, under this, under this word. I think the, Satire in regard to this character is pitched just right, though, because somehow, despite it being that exaggerated in terms of how he's controlling the overarching media narrative by controlling the actual events, it doesn't feel like too much. Like he's that monstrous. He, there, as you say, there are those brutal moments with the minor, but there are small things, particularly that particularly later in the movie that might make you think, oh, he actually does have shreds of humanity. Maybe he does care a little. Don't, he's, still a, he's still horrific as a human being, but for me, it was pitched just right. Yeah. But I think those points, the shift comes to the satirical points. You see it, this is an extreme comparison to make, but you see it in the tone that Chaplin was going for in the third act of The Great Dictator, where there was a seismic shift in the way the character was defined and what they aspired to, or at least what they were seen by the public to aspire to. So that is Ace in the Hole uh, from 1951 for all the Simpsons fans out there. Um, I, I just love going yeah, through these films and being like, yeah, Simpsons, the, I, Simpsons, I, the, I, Simpsons, Simpsons, Simpsons had, to a lot of gags that I really like in the, the Sabrina call out of that's good. That's, good. that's bad. That, that, I had that written down. I don't. Next up is Starlight 17 from 1953. It is again starring William Holden. It is a film set in a German prisoner of war camp, which predominantly holds as prisoners American personnel. And it is about the relationship between these men, between the guards, and increasing concerns that there is a spy 
among the ranks of the prisoners of war. We see William Holden in the beginning getting some preferential treatment and people start to wonder, oh, does he done something? Is he, to, is he under suspicion? I watched this. I feel this is, this is a trope that he's returned after a foreign affair, which is a very similar plot line. And I think he's refined a bit of those elements in this film, but I'll let you speak about Starlight 17 because I feel like I had stronger views about A Foreign Affair and you probably have stronger views about this film. Uh, oh, I found it very good. I found it one of the better Prisoner of War films. Certainly it comes prior to arguably the greatest Prisoner of War film, The Great Escape, at least the greatest Prisoner of War action movie. There are better... Wait, was, was this is different. Around, this, is a, this is a, about the dynamics and this is a... I mean, this is adapted from a play and it's very much about interplay between characters and slow building tension yep. from a constrained scenario. Was A Great Escape around this time? Or? 1960. I, I thought you were going to say Bridge on the River Kwai. Yeah, that's what yeah, I Bridge on the River Kwai came four years later. It was 57 or 57? Yeah, yeah. It precedes Great precedes Escape that. was 64. So. Yeah, yeah. But you were saying this precedes one of the great Prisoner of War movies. And I was waiting for the sentence to finish with Bridge on the River yeah. Kwai. Yeah, because that's what I kind of... Yeah, but my, my, again, my clarification from an action standpoint, I think this is closer to Great Escape than it is to Bridge on the Requi. One of the major criticisms of this film is that, like The Great Escape, and like a lot of early films focused on Prisoner of War camps, until The Bridge on the River Kwai, it focuses on a not very entirely realistic version of the living conditions, either of well, from a sanitary perspective or how they were treated, uh, yeah, living quarters. Bridge the Required was a lot more realistic. Even Bridge the Required and shy away from some of the more extreme stuff, even though it did, in fairness, cover some of the most extreme uh, matters. Yeah, I was surprised at how much it exaggerated um, the depiction in a positive direction, at how livable the prison nerve war camps seem to be. Yeah, like Hogan's when Heroes they, is the infamous example here. Hogan's Heroes, I think, owes a big debt to this. The whole Schultz character compared with the Schultz character in Hogan's Heroes. Oh my God. There's definitely a direct line. You know, they, they, in, he's a bit less of a fool in Stellar 17, but still is kind of a fool. He's, um, he's a devious fool, but still ultimately a fool. Um, but yeah, he's such a fascinating character. This guy who wants to be seen as one of the guys by his prisoners who lo- loves gags and jokes and laughs along with the Americans. I, I don't want to say too much more about him, but but just that that dynamic where they know he's not trustworthy, they're they're rightfully suspicious of this guy. Yeah, pretty interesting. Pretty well put, especially when we see this really tense scene involving egg. All took was an egg in a saucepan, and incredible incredible dynamic. Um, another thing I loved about this was the actual plausible explanation for how they couldn't find the person they were all searching for, and this really great reveal later in the film. Just just classy. I, th- I thought um, this is really, really well plotted. Um, I love how you get a sense of the interplay between these men. Um, individual personalities come out. There is a sense of the camaraderie of we're all in this, but at the same time, it's not the most, um, you know, compared to something like Hogan's Heroes, this is a lot darker. It also shows the way that the men can turn on each other, the suspicion, um, the fear that this kind of environment creates. I, I thought it was really funny, but with, um, mostly at this underplayed um, place, which just feels right for a film where the danger and death is always close by in the background. 
there's only a few moments where I thought the humor tipped too much into exaggerated silliness, mostly involving the character animal. Like to, to spoil one of those moments, like you can't splash paint in the face of the prison guards and then get away with, you know, get away with it. Like you're, you're getting catching a bullet in the back, mate. Yeah. But I don't know, I guess for the overall mood of the film, it wasn't too far fetched to, like in the internal logic of the film, I was like, okay, I can buy it. Like it's not because mm. at no point was it like you know, was it established that it was there was grievous bodily harm being inflicted to that extent. Yeah, yeah. It, it was still like a happy-go-lucky prisoner character. It, it is, it is. But even so, something like that is just like yeah, tipping the yeah, yeah, tipping yeah. the scales a little bit too far. Even in a place with too much. Yeah, yeah. Even in a place where they're nice to the the prisoners, I believe you're going to get shot at one if you put paint over yeah. a, a guard's face oh definitely like if this was like a hidden life by terrence malick that that would have happened yeah <laughs> that was yeah you, you you did it you managed to work in a malick reference <laughs> there we go <laughs> All right. I, was, I was like yeah you know <laughs> there was still there was still at film school probably earlier let's move on <laughs> <laughs> well, they we were probably to. just being you know they were they were in not not in film school they would have been in childhood yeah well, I guess they were just born filmmakers, so you know it's probably from school. They went. I've I've said this on the show before, but they they went to film school together. They're in the same year at the same film school. Would have been an amazing okay. class. Yeah, it definitely would be. <laughs> um, on on this film, this came out at the time when Frank Sinatra and his contemporaries were starring in any number of films about this era, about the circumstance, um, much more lighthearted, generally even less realistic depictions of what was going on. So by the standards of the day this was a much more faithful mm. uh, again an intendedly dramatic version of the experiences of those in prisoner of war camps having and said that by today's standards it's not the type of film that would hold up or would necessarily would, would really be made mm. but the drama in it is good enough that it still holds up and it still does strike a interesting multi-dimensional tone where there's elements of toughness and there's elements of Billy Wilder's signature commentary on the harshness in human nature, the way that we're prone to turning on each other. It balances that with the, the lightness and the comedy, I think really, really well. Yeah. I'm, it, yeah. It, it avoids being schmaltzy. Um, it, it ends on a note that t- takes all of these kind of through lines of tone and emotion to a place that ma- it makes sense. I, it's one of the films that amid, th- th- this was the beginning of the era of major Hollywood pictures to deal with er- uh, the Battle of the Bulge, errors in World War II, to do more increasingly realistic recreations of that time when there was a little bit of remove from the conflict and people were interested in dramatic versions of it. And and the lionization of individuals who were involved, and not unfairly so, and depictions of heroism. And this is one of the earlier better examples. This is a film that, like, it's one of those things where they say, you know, your dad sat you down and made you watch this. My dad did say, you have to watch this. And his dad said oh, before wow. him, you should watch this, Mark. So wow. um, this is a multi-generational film in my family. It's nice. not especially well, favorite oh, hi, one, but it's one that multiple, multiple generations have caused us to watch. Can I just say about this, the escape sequences are so tense and so well staged. There's a few moments in this that are really well staged. The aspect of, of the 
espionage uh, subplot, which becomes the overarching plot about figuring out who's the spy. As we move towards the reveal, there's a few moments in terms of how that's filmed and the figuring out how it works that are just so beautifully composed. I'm thinking uh, especially of the scene where it's Christmas, I think, and all the, the soldiers are going around and singing together while a, a realization is happening. And the way that these two contrasting character um, places that the characters are in and, and two contrasting layers of drama overlaid, I thought was just beautiful. Really speaks to his ability to juggle tones. No, I think it's great. Um, Starlink 17, I don't have too much else to say in it. I think it's worth catching. It's one of the ones that always played on Fox Classics. This one's one of my favorites from Billy Wilder, actually. I, I thought it's just really, really solid. So the next film we are talking about, again, the following year, he just turned them out. They did that in the studio days, is Sabrina starring, okay, again, William Holden, but also two of the most iconic actors of, in film history, not just Hollywood history, Humphrey Bogart and Audrey Hepburn, the only on-screen pairing between them. And we never actually discussed Audrey Hepburn on the show. So this will be a nice opportunity to talk about her. Yes. History. Yeah. She's, she's great. She's striking. Um, she's beautiful. She has great handwriting. She has yeah. amazing handwriting. Can I just say about that scene, before yes. we reveal the plot, it's most important to talk about Audrey Hepburn's handwriting. It could have, um, or whoever it was that was writing that, you, you don't, I believe, see in, in those close-up shots that it's actually her. It's so great that they allow us to read that entire letter as it's being I know, written. And exactly. that it, it plays out the whole, the whole writing of it yeah. as we watch it being written. And exactly, and, and it's, it's, not, it's not done with the voiceover or anything exactly. else like that. Exactly, no, or, or, or a voiceover or, or her reading it out out loud yeah. as she reads yeah. it, which is what it's was not dumbing it down. Done yeah. in, in that day. And today it's usually Even a voiceover. Even yeah. today, yeah. Um, the trusting in the pacing. But also, you kind of see the, you know, how she's writing as she's thinking it. Yes. So like, the, it's paused. So, like, as she's writing the letter, it's not, like, just scribble, scribble, scribble. It's like she writes a few words, then she stops, she thinks. Yeah. So it's how it was one of the... Yeah, it was one of the standout parts of the film for me. That whole, the whole opening segment of this film is superb. It's a, this film is about Sabrina, who is the chauffeur's daughter living in the big Fair mansion. Sabrina Fairchild. Yes. Um, <laughs> living in the mansion of a family like the Rockefellers or something. Yeah, who have the Larrabees. Their, Larrabees. The Larrabees, yeah, who have <laughs> their fingers in a lot of pies. And Basically, uh, she, they own everything. They have a, a Trump Tower-like estate where, where they're yep. in the real estate. They have a their Rockefeller own pier. Place. They have their own pier. They have their own... Uh, where you know the, the ferries and everything else, and yeah, it's very Philadelphia story, but more yeah. extreme. So they uh, are known to have extravagant parties, particularly David, who is hilariously introduced as the I forgot what sum of money right off referring to. Yes, David, played by William Holden. Um, yes. She has a, a crush on him that she's had since childhood, where she would always hide up in her tree and watch from a distance him at parties. That is the only aspect of the film I found it hard to buy was the fact that someone as striking as Audrey Hepburn was supposedly went unnoticed by William Holding. Or anyone else who managed to catch her before this. Yeah, very unbelievable. This, on the matter of Audrey Hepburn, I grew up, one of the most films I've seen more than any other is My Fair Lady. 
and this more than oh, breakfast oh, breakfast. for me. Okay. More than sorry for what? Sorry, I was going to say breakfast at Tiffany's, but yeah, okay. I think more than I've I've seen it a few times. I actually prefer. It's rare I'll say this. I prefer the film to the book marginally, um, and I do breakfast Tiffany's is excellent. But I think the, her defining performance, even more than breakfast Tiffany's and charade, is um, is my fair lady because this in that in a number of other films she was able to. She's not a singer. She's not a traditionally trained singer. She can't really sing many notes, but. She's one of those rare performers who are nonetheless able to do a convincing tune and do so much. She's effortlessly and endlessly charming. And Sabrina, the, 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 the way I mean, she, she, she owns the screen when she's on the screen. I mean, there's, yeah. you don't look at anyone else, even Humphrey Bogart. I mean, I am not looking at anyone else. It's Audrey Hepburn. Mm. And she has, but she's not even trying. And that's the beautiful part about it. It's not that she's, it's effortless in that sense. She has an that's innocence good, to her. But that's bad. Yeah. That's good. Simpsons fans, <laughs> look it up. That whole opening segment of the film I found to be just superb. I'm um, seeing how she's watching David at a party and yeah. it's leading to, you know, her feelings about that and the way things gradually come to her head and then it moves her to the next stage of her life and the plot. Yeah. And um, it's a beautiful thing. The heartbreak scene is beautiful. Yeah, like, yeah. It, it's like, Oh, who is it? Uh, oh, Sabrina. Sabrina who? Yeah, it's... Oh, no, no one. And, you know, and then, then she realizes that he still doesn't notice her. Right. It's such a beautiful you know, way of expressing that instead of like yeah. a dramatic drawn out sequence. It's just a small thing. And it's like, yep, you already know where it's, it's going. It's simple and it's relatable. And I really wonder how it plays on the stage because on screen here in this adaptation, it's incredibly cinematic yes. and beautifully expressed visually. The, the big open spaces and the watching from the tree and looking up at the moon, which becomes yeah. a metaphor in the story and the big empty indoor tennis court, the big, the huge garage, um, the contrast yeah. of all these, the cramped spaces it's, 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 and the big wide spaces. It doesn't feel like it's confined to location, even though it is, it's clearly stage one. It's like location it's, one to location but two. It's been imagined it, yeah. really strongly yeah. visually for the film. Yeah, it's after this segment of the film that it loses me a bit because the central problem is for me this early part is relatable, right? Past a certain point, the characters in this are such dicks. They're just they're all spoiled, yeah. rich Everyone jerks, is, right? Yeah, they are. Like, I'm I'm more familiar with the remake from seeing it a lot on TV, which makes yeah. Harrison, there was a there, remake. There was a I remake. Never saw it with um. Sidney Pollock directed it, and Harrison Ford. No idea. Was uh, Harrison Ford was Linus and um, Alec Baldwin? No, not Alec Baldwin. I um, never. I'm looking it up. I never bothered to see it. No What's idea. his name? Original. Uh, no, I uh, I'm having that thing where you just. You're blanking on someone's face uh, name. Greg Kinnear, I think, was was David. Greg, Greg Kinnear. Greg oh Kinnear was God. David, yeah. Actually, he would be a good, yeah. He, would he is a good David. David. That version keeps a little bit of the jerkiness to the Linus character, but tries to make him more sympathetic. So oh, my God. I mean, there was an aspect, there was such creepy, to be honest. Yeah. This one, it's, all, it's all in the family, and I was just like, oh, my God, this is not. Yeah, the, the remake adjusts things for our current sensibilities. So even, it, even, even though I think the film does address the age difference, and it, yeah. It brings it quite explicitly to the forefront. But I don't think it ever makes Linus sympathetic enough that we're yeah. able to buy him. In fact, uh, David comes across as more sympathetic by the end point. And yet he's a total jerk early on. Yeah. Um, the, the movie, the remake version, 
balances it out so that Linus still has jerky aspects, but also is overall way more sympathetic so that you can actually cheer for a happy outcome involving his character. Yeah. Um, I, I, and I, it makes Sabrina more worldly. Um, the problem for me with Sabrina was she's a little bit too... She's 22. I mean... She, yeah, I get she's an innocent, but she's maybe a little bit too blandly nice and kind yeah. of that she what, comes off as maybe a bit boring. And yeah. ultimately, this is a movie where she doesn't have much agency. It's called Sabrina, but it's really about the battle between two men yeah. who want to win her affections. And both of them are rich jerks. And at a certain point, I can't relate to that. And yeah. I don't really care, no matter how I mean, witty the dialogue is or how, how charming the actors are. And both of those, those things yeah. are definitely present in this. It's, it's, don't get me wrong. Yeah. I totally recommend the film. But like, uh, you're right, in a sense, and I think what the film was going for was that she was supposedly naive before, but after going to Paris and after coming back from Paris, she is somehow fine, found herself and become more worldly wise, but I don't think it comes but across in the film. No, she's still too she's much the naive. innocent. And she's also too much, you know, rom romantic in the idea that she just believes in, in believing in love. And it's like, oh my God, what will I do now? Am I going to get my heart broken once again, kind of thing. I think that was my major issue on my, uh, uh, more, more of my first watch of the film. I mentioned Philadelphia's story earlier, a, a very similar narrative, which I exponentially prefer. And it's not simply because there is the input and presence and motivation by persons who aren't of this realm, who most moviegoers can better relate to, but the persons, the Tracy Lords, the people who are rich, like the Humphrey Bogan and William Holden characters, they, in Philadelphia's story, in high society, the conflict comes down more to their own misgivings in this world, whereas here, they just readily accept it. It's this tete-a-tete -tete which could happen as much in any other environment because it happens to be set. Yes, it's nice to watch lavish places and beautiful big garages and um, ha eerily haunting indoor tennis court. Hmm. It's, <laughs> it doesn't mean we can, yeah. and it's great to look at great and pretty things, but it doesn't necessarily mean we can relate or engage as well. And this is a detraction of the film, whereas his other films are focused on much more, as you would say, Ordinary Joes and all his other ones. William Holden has played uh, a POW, who, in fairness, we don't know too much about his background, but he's very much portrayed as a regular guy. Um, same with Sunset Boulevard, Regulus is just hustling, and even Double Indemnity. They're not great characters, but the Fred McMur McMurray character is just trying to make ends meet. They're like regular people who get dragged into dark places. But I think we still see the wilder touch in this film in the sense about his cynicism towards, especially towards the rich, because there are a lot of bobs about rich people that land really well, especially from oh, yeah. Sabrina's father, uh, the chauffeur who gives her advice about, you know, democracy isn't fair to the poor. Yeah, nobody, yeah, yeah. You know, nobody ever, uh, nobody ever gave the benefit of the doubt to the poor who married a rich person. You so, know who come across as sympathetic? The chauffeur and the cooks and, and everyone the, else and the who servants, works yeah, who are her real the family. The staff. Yeah, yeah. The They're staff. the nice people. Exactly. It, it was, it's Downton Abbey before Downton Abbey, essentially. It kind of feels like that, where the staff and the servants... They are the real soul of, of this household. Gosford Park. Yeah, if, yeah. if this had gone on for two seasons, um, it would have probably got ridiculous too. To, um, yeah. <laughs> By the way, guys, did you know that, just dropping unrelated trivia in here, that uh, Downton Abbey started life as Gosford Park, the TV show? Oh, okay. So, um, I and then it became its own thing. Downton and Abbey. Lost started as Castaway, the TV show, before it became its own thing. God, Downton wow. Abbey. I'm, I'm, I'm anyway. watching it uh, sporadically. 
I really like the first season. I like the second season too, but it got some of the plot lines got a little ridi- unnecessarily ridiculous. Yeah. Oh. But also, uh, this was my least impressive Humphrey Bogart performance. I just he he's was, coasting on his charm a little bit. Yeah, here. He, it was very yeah. comfort, Humphrey Bogart. But also, just I don't think there was much charm there. <laughs> yeah, I think that's maybe, more in the well. Maybe the character of Linus is not. You know, there's not much to do. It, you know, it's also he's not he, that sympathetic. He messes I mean, with his brother's so... uh, personal life in yeah. order to manipulate stocks. He inflicts a massive injury that puts his brother out of action for most of the film. I think that was just oh god, like I don't think that was that deliberate. I think that was just still played off as in, inadvertent to some extent. It's a little unfortunate, but still, like he deserved the punches that he gets. He does get a few punches in there. It's a little unfortunate that he to the extent that he chose this film at this point in his career prior to the Malgis Falcon he made all these gangster picks then he made all these leading man picks but then post treasure Sierra Madre going into Kane Mutiny he was picking more interesting roles which showcased his talent and here it's just a reversion to ah oh, I'm uh, you know charming Humphrey Bogart it's kind of like the late stage Harrison Ford era where he's just playing regular roles you could pick up, which anyone else could do just as well, but he, he just, it just seems like he's walked no, into there, the set. Something, there was just something so incredibly uncomfortable about that pairing for me, <laughs> you know, because not saying she, that, it's not just the age issue, it is also just... Her innocence... The power yeah, that her so, innocence so, versus no, like knowing that he is that manipulative. Yeah. He has that within him. Can you be happy about any of those characters ending up with a, a life together? It's not a fantasy all. of, it's just a fantasy of like the, yeah, it, it's the little not just girl gets poor, noticed by the prince. But it, it's not just a rich poor thing. It's also the fact that, you know, he clearly can do anything he wants. And he's clearly is going to make her believe things which are not true. And even till the end, even the ending is, you know, sort of a false note where, you know, she goes on looking and he's not there. So even by the end, I'm like, oh, you're still playing games with her. It, is, it feels like a game to him. And that is what it's just like. There's never a, a sincere confession of love or a sincere declaration of like, here's how I feel. There's no sincerity. Yeah, the movie is, is very clever to a fault. Ultimately, I agree with you. She's way too good for him. In fact, I think David's admission of like... I agree. David he, redeems himself. The way he tries to admit the fact that I'm sorry I didn't notice you, but now I do and I'm actually, you know besought by you. I think William Holden really did play that scene very convincingly. Yeah, and William Holden also, in, in the trajectory of his character, comes to try to do good things for other people. Yeah. And, and he which does, you is know, something that Bogart's character never really does. Yeah, and he's still, you know, he's just a cold-hearted businessman with a supposedly a heart of gold, but we never get to see the heart of gold side, which is when Sabrina, when she has a change of heart, and she's like, oh, I thought to him to be just a cold-hearted, I'm so scared of him. But he's not that bad. I'm just like, well, he, he's not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think he still is. I don't see what he's talking about. So that is Sabrina. But, but it's a very film charming that film. So like, you know, Audrey Hepburn is, this, is amazing in this film. So. The film that to this day has caused me to never carry glasses in my pocket. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The truth. I, whenever I put a glass in my pocket, I think of this movie. Okay. And yeah. Be yeah. well. It's, yeah. It's, Guys, guys, I hear uh, yeah. in this one you get to see Marilyn Monroe's panties. No, you don't. No, you don't. Yeah, <laughs> too, too hot for the time. Yeah, no, but, but trivia. Uh, Samuel Rich was a play that they go to see in Sabrina. So, and then he makes the movie. So I guess, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, I'll feature your play if you make it. 
if you let me give it the rights to making a movie. I reckon he probably was already working on having the rights or had them already when he put that line in Sabrina. It must have been. He must Come have, on. you know. It's like it's it's setting up promotion for the it promotes the play and it promotes his future film adaptation. So clever. It's like a it's a Billy Wilder. Businessman. Billy Wilder the producer. He, he he becomes a producer and he starts working in references to his other films and he starts generally making more crowd pleasing films. The BWCU, the Billy Wilder Cinematic Universe. Should we call it that? Oh man, I love that we're talking about a time where we didn't have to worry about such things as cinematic universes. Well, look, William Holden is doing, pulling a lot of the weight in this Billy Wilder cinematic universe. He does. He definitely is a lot of, he's many, he is many people. He, and so is Fred McMurray, biggest, biggest range, arguably. Um, and he deserves it. I don't think for William Holden, anything apart from Holden. Billy Holden, Holden for what? Really? You yeah. keep saying, William, oh my God. <laughs> Okay, well, I, I'm that... somehow in my head just thought it was holding. So sorry, sorry, William. <laughs> oh God. Okay, go watch Picnic. Uh, seven Year Itch. Yeah. Okay, so the Seven Year Itch. So, <laughs> all right. So that was Sabrina. Next film we are talking about is Wilder's first collaboration with Marilyn Monroe from '55, The Seven Year Itch, based on a play which was featured in Sabrina. It is about a husband whose kids and family are going away for a little while he's supposed to join them but apparently all married men and all of them on his street have been married <laughs> for exactly seven years and experienced seven itch where oh i've been with the same woman for seven years i have to go cheat on my wife and he's trying to resist he thinks he's a good guy because he's not cheating right away good on you mate and then of course marilyn monroe moves in upstairs and in her blazing hilarious um overtly over sexual um epitome of what we know as marilyn monroe there's obviously many people associate the famous image of her skirt flying up from the subway great with this film they did film it for this film but it was of course not in it because it cannot be featured it was too salacious and but having said that to this film's credit it was possibly the most instrumental film in helping to abolish the haze code at the time. Interesting, um, before we get onto that, which is the unavoidable subject when it talks when we talk about this film, the skirt blowing up scene, they shot um, on location and also in a backlight. And they used apparently footage from the on location version and the backlight version in the film. So why bother to do both? Apparently it's just because they knew that doing it on location, they'd, there'd be paparazzi there. They knew that it would become such an iconic image and they staged it as a you know to double header of to film it and but mostly as a publicity stunt it is also rumored that again i stress rumored that it was an instrumental element in the uh irrevocable breakdown of her marriage with joe dimaggio because oh her being public and uh being part of this publicity stunt outrageous preposterous couldn't happen so this gave the film publicity it couldn't buy and ensured it would be hit well before. I am, I'm quite fond of it. I think it's aged terribly. I think it's aged worse than a lot of other, yeah. most of, if not all of Billy Wilder's films, because again, he portrays this endearing gentlemanly figure, whereas the entire film, she clearly is not letting on that she's interested, bro. She, she, she's not keen, but. And yet, okay, I'm going to drop some light spoilers into this one. 
and yet she is towards the end it's so undeniable in the how that she's reacting as if oh i'm aware that you perceive this as sec- as a sexual come on and i'm going to keep doing it until that moment there's the kind of ambiguity about is she not interested and is he just projecting things onto it but by the end i thought they resolved that ambiguity that yes she is kind of hitting on him yeah, there's such a quick turnaround of that. We don't get to see her perspective or how this really came about. Exactly. That would have made it way more interesting. And that goes into one of my big issues with this film, which is Monroe's characterization. She's a flat character, but she's basically there as a sex symbol and a dumb blonde archetype. For me, oh, she's she, she treated as too the dumb. girl. <laughs> yeah, she's called the girl, right? For yeah. me, she was too dumb. And this movie's Sugar really- Kane was one step up. Right. This movie is is pretty long for what it is. And her character simply needed to have more dimension to her if it was going to extend this scenario to this length. I think Wilder at this point was going off. She'd been in monkey business all that eve, Niagara. She'd had generally prefer blondes. She'd had some major hits and he wanted to capitalize with her on this image of what Marilyn Monroe had become. So he found the ideal play and put her in and ramped up the overt and over the top aspects of it. He did change some elements of the play itself. Um, But that's the thing. She's not a fleshed out character. It's a film I don't like at all, bus stop, for its characterization of her, uh, for its characterization. But nonetheless, in that, she had a much more complex character, which I appreciated much more than she didn't have in this. I think uh, this movie does a huge disservice to Marlon Monroe, the actress, because yeah. as we do come to know in a lot of other films, and a lot of films after this as well, uh, this film did cement her place in pedestal as the sex symbol, which is unfair to her acting credentials because she was a wonderful actress and a wonderful comedic actress as well, which we will come to know. She doesn't have enough to I do here. Yeah. She does the same thing over and over again. And she's not given enough scope. And it's to, to her credit as an actress that she's able to make such a flimsy characterization as believable and interesting and as mysterious as it is for such a long period of time. Because there's not enough. There's, it's just a repetitive shtick. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, up and beyond a point in time, we don't really know whether or not she's, you know, uh, you know we also come to realize that you know, what her intentions are. So it's not as ambiguous as it is. But it's to her credit that she keeps it as ambiguous because there's nothing for her to do. Yeah, that's so, true. I think we have to make a distinction, though, on her performance and her performance, all of her performances. Some of her best work is when she's being this over-the-top, um, deliberately sexual object, uh, at least to the persons in the film, or how she's... And, or how the, for the or camera and, and the director. And having said that, we're going to talk about something like Gahan a little bit where she has a lot more diversity of things to do here. It's my yep. are in the ice box and, oh my God, can you help with this? Oh my God, I fell over. Oh my God, you tried to kiss me. Oh my God, this is this okay? But yeah, I, I think it also, we're also tracking the trajectory of Molly Monroe as she becomes more aware of how the public and the audience sees her. And then she starts playing off Plays of to it in, in, in a lot of uh, future films. So she's more self-aware and she knows how to handle that perception and she becomes clever in utilizing it and also when to play it down and when to play it up. Mm. I think in this film, really, she's still coming to terms with that fact as to, oh my God, this is how I am being seen in the movies. And this is a film that actually cements her status as that you know, public consciousness 
than how most people come the here. dumb blonde who's hot which is unfair which i feel is really unfair <laughs> the thing that i like about this film i mean we've spent we've we've been almost <laughs> completely negative but i still enjoy the film it's a good movie it's a good it's movie fun. um the the opening though yeah clearly doing it with with brown face wouldn't fly today yeah. but the whole concept of with the the talking about oh you know about native americans and then suddenly this movie's got nothing to do with that except for this one thing i love that kind of goofy playfulness oh. there's some really funny gags in that that the whole stretch yeah the paddle and the the way it's used in the crowd scenes great i think yeah it's quite funny i've forgotten the leading man's name um rachmaninoff's uh, greatest fan oh yeah yeah the right some of his fantasy sequences are uh, quite funny. Right. Yeah. The Richard Rachman- Sherman. Richard Sherman is, is, the, is the character's name. Yeah. The the Rachmaninoff Marilyn Monroe in, in her evening dress on the piano thing is is, is really the funny. Dream sequence. Gold. Yeah. The the neighbor who does some Hayes code innuendos, um, well as the as this nosy guy who uh, Sherman tries to make leave which is, is really funnily staged for the camera. Um, yeah, there, there's a lot of really funny things about it. It's just, I think that the film establishes a pattern much as it does with Marilyn Monroe's character and doesn't do much with it. Uh, so the uh, fantasies that this character has, like Walter Mitty, they're funny at first, right? but then I think there's just too many of them. Um, I read that Billy Wilder said later about this film that he regretted making it in the Hayes Code era because he thought that they needed to actually sleep together to stop the film from just spinning his wheels. And I think he's right on the money about that. At a certain point, it's shown you every card it has and it just keeps it going. So With what's, that, the, what's the Hayes Code thing? Uh, the Hayes Code came in after Scarface. It was essentially the US government found that it was unacceptable uh, certain levels of violence and sexual promiscuity on screen. So they had very deliberate rules as to how uh, certain things could be depicted. For instance, you couldn't have a married couple, anyone who wasn't a married couple, sit on the bed at the same time unless one of their feet was on the ground. There were always ridiculous rules like that. And Wilder's filmography, in particular, this was not only trying to push it out, but poking fun at a lot of the very stringent stipulations of the Hays Code. The, the, the very strict criteria and it changed after that when the code was abolished but the send but censorship not the censorship excuse me classifications came in g pg m15 plus you can date it back those back to the end of the Hayes code which came about 57 so after this film was released yeah um interesting factoid i was reading that a big reason why the Hayes code was introduced was that um that some of the media was running with the oh these these jews are, are corrupting your children angle so oh, the studio God. heads actually agreed among themselves on the idea of a Hayes code in order to sell keep um good christian parents from being afraid to send their kids to the movies for the afternoon by showing you how moral we are that is actually apparently a big part of the behind-the-scenes discussions. Oh, dear. The, there's, there's pesky Jews. There's a big... Um, <laughs> so so here's, here's the peskiest Jew of them all, Billy Wilder, um, here to try and push that, as, as push things as far as they can <laughs> right back to the old days. Um, and, and I would have succeeded if it weren't for those meddling Jews. 
But um, we did succeed. All these films. We did succeed. This was a big success. But a cliche you hear Hi, when, mate. when people talk about the good old days and classic Hollywood and the golden and silver ages is uh, how films used to be better when they when they were more subtle. You know, you couldn't just be explicit and trashy, and you had to suggest things, and that made the writing more clever, and that made it better. This film coupled with Wilder's later The Apartment, are the perfect counter-argument to that. Restraint and subtlety can be a good thing, but not when it restricts the subject matter, and it should always be an artistic choice. Um, But we can get to that more when we talk about The Apartment. With relation to this film, I think, as Wilder said, it just needed to progress the plot so it wasn't just the established gag continuing and continuing and continuing and the only way to progress the plot and bring in more more conflict it can still be a light comedy with conflict um is to have him give in to his urge at some point i think on the matter of censorship and how it can play into filmmaking creativity i think in the context of this film it helped with a lot of the great innuendo, which otherwise would not have been available the remit if they're not of those strictures against them. I agree as regards subject matter and portraying things sometimes as you need to graphically and literally. Having said that, I, I'm not a fan of um, the stringent criteria that even today, American classification systems have on uh, films, for instance, in order for a film to be rated PG, you cannot use the word fuck more than once. If you use it more than once, it becomes an R film. So there's an, and as much as that is a restriction, it's meant that directors have been incredibly creative in deploying that and have, and therefore it has given the word more power, more emphasis when it has singularly to be deployed in some films. And I don't think not having been able to use that word in excess means is, is a is such a creative restriction so there are forms where it can be very beneficial even if it shouldn't be there and there are part and there are times as chris alluded to where it can be detrimental to this it just it, the film if it, i would have been fine with the film in its format if it had been a lot shorter and punchier yes a one two act play would have been fine yeah i agree i don't think that a story must have that but it must have that step towards actual adultery happening if it's to be this long you know, I, I think like an 80 minute version of this where it's just about one man struggles yeah. would work given, well. Given, given that one man, Marilyn Monroe moved upstairs. What do I do? Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. I, I, I yeah, that. exactly. Exactly. Yeah, given that nothing actually happens, happens, and it is mostly. It's amusing. Yeah. A couple of other things. It's just oh. itchy. <laughs> I liked about this, his job about making compendium books, like smaller versions of classics. Like yeah, yeah, really funny. Very, very good. And the guy, the guy who plays the psychoanalyst is so good. The whole, that whole, that whole thread of the film coming up with a cover and ways to market his, his book about the subconscious where it's becomes like this salacious thriller cover. Great. Well, it, I think it also predicted how, where the, book industry is gone or is come to today yeah. where a lot of the authors are expected to do their own marketing as well because you know it's all about the brand and it's less about the book it's more about whether or not there's enough publicity around the book for it to sell yeah, yeah we, we say this on what was meant to be the opening day of the sydney writers festival they've emphasized that the biggest uh, detriment to the industry in this current prevailing climate has been the mobility for authors to promote their work through book tours and 
getting the money and royalties that they need to live on. It's very sad, but that's, yeah. Um, that's, well, we will hopefully be at the other side of that soon. It's, we, we talk about the film industry, but it affects any number of creative industries. It affects in basically every industry in the world. Let's be honest. Who would want to be a writer in this economy? Well, so, the one thing you have is time. Yeah, there's a lot of screenplays going to come out of this. A lot of people shipping screenplays. Let's hope. Yeah. So then that was the 70 itch. The next film we're talking about before we get on, before we get on to a few of his, this is a well-known one, but for his, for his most well-known ones is with the prosecution, another adaptation of a play this time by Agatha Christie. It is about a, it's about a murder mystery. Yeah. I, it's, I don't feel we need actually to say much more because I, I hate describing Anthony stories because I feel it gives okay. too much away. Okay, this it, is the one okay. that I, I didn't see, so I'll let you guys have it. Okay, so Charles Lawton, um, who by the, directed The Amazing Night of the Hunter in his um, only directorial effort, uh, which came out, I think, the same year as this. As this uh, yes, 57. 15, yeah. Great year for him. Um, but yeah, yeah, well, yeah, Charles Lawton, better known as an actor, here gives a fantastic performance as a unhealthy uh, and frequently chastised by his nurse, um, but highly respected, super intelligent barrister who it takes on a case where it seems um, impossible to prove innocence from what he's hearing based purely on trusting his intuition and his desire for the challenge. I like this film as a mystery thriller rather than a legal thriller. It's trying to be both and to be very clear. As a mystery thriller, it does the thing I love most in film, in mystery films. Knives Out accomplished it quite well too, where they, and they present the dunamot in a way that you will not believe it and dismiss it. And therefore, it comes as an about turn. The Illusionist did this very well to a very underrated film. I like it from that perspective. And certainly, Marlena Dietrich is exceptional as she always is. Um, this is a very good cast. What frustrates me about this film, it frustrated me first when I watched it um, when I was in high school, since becoming a solicitor, it frustrates me even more that it's, it's, it's a, a big issue for me in a lot of films where lawyers just don't act, not even as lawyers might do, but as they never would in cinema. It presents an idea, there are very few films, legal dramas, which presents an idea of how lawyers actually operate or what they would do in any circumstance from an ethical, practical perspective. This is a relatively extreme version of that. There are a lot of bad examples. And I don't think it speaks to the quality of film. I appreciate that it's taking place in a heightened universe, but there's no reason you can't make a more grounded legal thriller and it be that much more relatable and effective for scores of people who will turn out specifically for this sort of drama. I agree with you that a lot of the way the legal drama was depicted wasn't realistic but it's such an entertaining film right it's like fun I, I, it's yeah i thought this was a lot of fun it has great performances throughout um the there is genuine tension to it i think it just purely in terms of direction and as a theatrical piece and how the actors are presented and the drama plays out the courtroom scenes are great i've always wondered though why this more than i appreciate Christie made a play of it, but why this story more than many others, with the exception of Orient Express, Death on the Nile, have caught on the cultural zeitgeist by Agatha Christie? She wrote a lot better novels over the years. I think just because it was already in the play format, which Billy Wilder knew could easily be translated into a film, 
and because it was a popular success around this time. I think that's fair. I, I just wish it hadn't been Christie's choice. I think she's made much better films with much more interesting characters. The singular setting, again, it's a, lazy, it's a straightforward, relatively effortless way to translate a play film. It becomes very obvious. Um, most courtroom dramas, even if they predominantly take place in a courtroom or that sort of environment, people move around. It's reason there's a dynamism, there's a fluidity to it. It doesn't exist here. Again, we accepted this more in the 50s uh, in, this, in the age of 12 angry men, but now we've moved so far beyond that. So I think that ages the film very poorly and maybe even to an extent in 57. The whole film is very quaint. I think the, the relations between the characters are quite cutesy. Um, it, it's very affected, very, very English, but... Um, there's an innocent kind of enjoyment in it. Marlena Dietrich is great. She's so, so, so great. Are, are we running out of things to say about this? I don't have anything else to add. I, I, I think got, it's one of his lesser films. I don't think it's a bad film. I've got some spoiler discussion stuff to say on it. That's all we've got time for in this podcast. We've decided to split it into two parts because we all ended up having more to say about Billy Wilder than we bargained for. In the next part, we'll be talking about The Spirit of St. Louis briefly and some of the most significant films of Wilder's career, Some Like It Hot and The Apartment, as well as Irma LaDuce. We'll also have some discussions of spoilers for Witness for the Prosecution and The Apartment at the end of the podcast. Hope to catch you guys next time. All the best.